Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is week 2 in our Be Strong series. On Sunday mornings, we are working our way through the book of 2 Peter. Uh, Really excited about this. And that was a fitting song that the band played because as we're talking about Christian growth and being strong, we know that, that one of the keys to that is what John the Baptist really said, that I need to decrease that Jesus might increase. And we're going to be talking about that idea a little bit today. And um, so let's begin reading. We're going to focus on verses 5 through 11, but for context sake, let's, let's begin reading in verse 1 once again. Peter writes, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now that was our focus last week in verses 1 through 4. If you missed it, it's available online on our website. But we pick up today in verse 5, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray today by by the power of your Holy Spirit that you, God, would speak to us. Lord, I pray that like we were singing, that we might find ourselves today just overwhelmed with who you are and who we are in Jesus, and by the reality of what you are desiring to do in each one of our lives. And so we give you this time today in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in about a month, my son Aaron and his wife Brooklyn are going to be having a little baby. Really excited about that. And they are having a boy. So the Salvato name is going to live on. Super pumped. And what's interesting is when a baby, a healthy baby, comes into this world... It really has everything that it needs in order to function as a healthy human being. That it, it has been given a brain and it has lungs and a heart and eyes and ears and hands and feet and legs and arms. And that little baby just needs to learn how to use what it has been given to function proper, properly. 
Its muscles need to grow and to develop. And the same thing is true in the Christian life. When you are born again, you are given everything that you need to live a vibrant and fruitful and victorious life in Jesus. But the key is we have to learn how to use and to develop what we have been given. And that was the focus of our study last week. As we looked at verses 1 through 4, and we really keyed in on the idea that Peter's telling us here that we have been supplied. In verse 3, he tells us that through his divine power, he has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That everything that we're looking for has been given to us. And not only divine power, but divine promises. Exceedingly great and precious promises. And not only divine power and divine promises, but a divine nature that God has given to us. And we noted that all of that was connected to our growing in the knowledge and the experience of who Jesus is and who we are in him and what he has done for us. Well, today we come to verse 5, and Peter here is building off that idea that we have been supplied when he says, but also for this very reason, because of what God has given to us, because of this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Now this sounds a little bit like a paradoxical statement. Peter says, God has given you everything that you need, and then he says, and now add to that. And I think the question that comes into our mind is how can you add anything to everything, right? I've given you everything that you need for life and godliness. Now add to that. Well, the simple answer to that paradox is this. Growth, Christian growth, growing in Jesus takes cooperation, that I must, that you must have cooperation in God's operation. In other words, I am to be involved in this process. That Christian growth doesn't just happen by accident. We can't be passive when it comes to growing in the Lord. We need to be deliberate and we need to be intentional. And Peter says, giving all diligence. And the idea behind that statement is, take this seriously. Put forth the effort. Make it a priority. We could call it an active priority and maximum effort. But here's what I want you to understand. When he says, add to your faith, you want to write in your Bible, you could write the word next to it, lavishly supply. Lavishly supply. And this is what Peter is getting at. He's saying, God has given you everything. Everything that pertains to life and godliness through his divine power and through his divine promises and through his divine nature. He's given that to you already. That comes to you when you give your life to Christ. Now take what has been given to you and lavishly supply your faith. In fact, that phrase or that idea of lavishly supplying was used in that day for the production of the Greek plays. You see, a writer would write a play. And just like today, in order for that play to go to production, it would need a financial backer. 
So a financial backer would read the play and he would like it. And he's like, hey, let's do this. And I want you to know, I am going to lavishly supply everything that you need to make this play work. And let's make it the best play ever. Let's make it a hit. So they're taking what is being given and he's supplying it and they're putting it to use. Well, our Lord, he's the supplier. He's the backer. And he has an unlimited bank account. And he's given us his divine power and his divine promises and his divine nature. He's already told us that he's given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And now Peter's saying we need to take that, take those resources, and lavishly supply your faith. Let me give you another analogy. Probably a lot of you ladies will relate to and a lot of you parents My daughter, Amanda, my youngest, when she was about eight years old, she was already planning her wedding. She was a romantic and she had these big ideas, you know, about what her, you know, wedding was going to look like. Problem was dad had three kids and a very limited bank account. So she wasn't going to be able to, you know, have the, the wedding of her dreams as an eight-year-old. Now, Scott and Amanda had a great wedding. It was held at Green Oaks Ranch here in Vista, not the Ritz overlooking the ocean in Laguna, okay? But it was a good time. It was a great wedding. And it's interesting because now Scott and Amanda are very talented, very sought after wedding photographers. They shoot weddings all over the place. People fly them to places. And they've gone and shot weddings where the budget was eighty to $100,000. So Amanda's kind of getting to live vicariously, you know, her dreams through these other people as she takes these pictures, all right? But here, here's the picture. Here's what I want you to catch. You're planning your wedding. And dad is going to pay for the wedding. He's going to pay for the reception. He's going to pay for the the honeymoon. And your dad is a billionaire. And so your dad says, honey, I love you. I want you to have the wedding of your dreams. So do whatever you want. Hold nothing back. Money is not an option. If your dad tells you that, you're not going to go shopping at Pick and Save, right? You're not going to be nickel and diming your way to planning your wedding. When it comes to your honeymoon, it's not going to be at the Motel 6 in Oceanside. No, we're talking Fiji on some place overlooking the water, 10000 a night, because you know it's not going to make a dent in dad's bank account. And when people come to your wedding, and then they come to your reception, and they hear about your, your honeymoon, they're like, man, your dad is amazing. I wish I had a dad like that. And so too. When the world looks at the Christian living a full life in Jesus. When they see the depth of character, when they see the joy in us in the midst of difficult circumstances, they look at us and it's like, man, I wish I had a life like yours. And we're able to say, well, you need to meet my dad. You need to meet my Savior because all of this is connected to him. This is what Peter's saying. 
Take what God has made available in Christ and lavishly supply your faith, holding nothing back. Take what you've been given in Jesus and use it to make your faith strong and to make it the best. Now here's what's interesting. In those two analogies of the generous dad in the wedding and the financial backer in the play, the play is being supplied. Everything they need to make the play work is being supplied. But the actors, they still need to learn their lines. They still need to practice. All the musicians need to learn their parts. And they need to practice. The financial backer, he's not going to do any of that for them. They've got to put the effort in to make that play happen. In the same way, the, the generous dad, he gives you everything that you need to have the wedding of your dreams, but, but he's not going to do it for you. You still have to book the venues and pick out the dresses and the caters and all. You have to do your part. And this is Peter's point. Spiritual growth takes cooperation in God's operation. Paul wrote something very similar in Philippians chapter 2 when he said this, Therefore, brethren, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now, maybe you've read that and you've been puzzled by, what does he mean by work out your salvation? I thought Paul said in Ephesians that, that Ephesians, or the, the, excuse me, salvation was the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Well, what is he talking about here? Work out your salvation. Well, understand, the word salvation that Paul uses here is not justification. Justification is when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and God looks at you and declares that you've been justified. You have been made righteous. It's been said that justification is the miracle of a moment. It happens the moment that you put your faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven, your guilt is removed, and in God's presence, your standing is you are righteous because you are in Christ. That's justification. That's what we normally think of when we hear that word salvation. This word being used here when he says work out your salvation is the word sanctification. And sanctification is the process where you and I as people who have come to faith in Christ are being set apart to become more like Jesus. It's been said that justification is the miracle of a moment, but sanctification is the process of a lifetime. So Paul is saying, hey, you got to work out. you got to put some effort into your sanctification. But then he adds this, but it's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So this is what he's telling us. It's amazing. God is working in you. He gives you his power. He gives you his promises. He gives you his Holy Spirit. That's part of that divine nature inside of you. And now you need to take that and to work on or to work out your sanctification by lavishly supplying your faith with what he has given you. Think of it this way. It's like muscles. You all have muscles. Part of God's design of human anatomy. You come into this world and you have muscles, but you got to work them out. You got to develop them. And I've seen older people. My dad was this way after he had his stroke. And the older he got, the more limited he, he became. And it so frustrated him. But my dad, he was such a strong man. But later in his later years, because he couldn't use those muscles, they began to atrophy. And it frustrated the heck out of him. 
couldn't use those muscles. Well, all of you here, you have muscles, but those muscles are only evident in some of you. Because you see, there are people who have never developed their muscles. They've never put them to use, and so they're weak. And there's other people, like my dad, who for whatever you know, physical reason, they've quit using their muscles, and they've become weak. And I know Christians who experience what we could call spiritual atrophy because they quit using their spiritual muscles. They quit walking by faith. And they just sort of begin to cruise through life, playing it safe. And so that faith muscle begins to atrophy or it never gets developed. I know others who've allowed their lives to be, be, be defined by something from their past, something that has happened to them. Maybe it comes to a place where their, their life has been defined because of some past hurt by bitterness or unforgiveness. And because of that, that love muscle never begins, gets a chance to develop. That trust muscle never gets a chance to develop. And so what Peter is telling us here is that we develop our spiritual muscles of faith in the same way as we do physically by using them. That it's cooperating in the operation of God. So that's the picture that Peter's painting here. And I, and I want us to, to move on here. Peter's saying, okay, so knowing that, knowing that you've been supplied, now giving all diligence, add to your faith. And he gives us seven ways that we are to lavishly supply our faith. And I want you to note that all seven of these, they flow together and they're all connected to who Jesus is and are growing in the grace and knowledge of who he is. So he says, first of all, lavishly supply your faith with virtue. The word virtue speaks of moral excellence. And one way to look at excellence is that it's something that fulfills the purpose for which it was made. Well, you and I, we have been made, the Bible says, in the image of God. We are called to be image bearers of God. Now, sin marred that. But Jesus came to redeem that. That's why Jesus would say, hey, you're to be the light of the world. We're, we're to be in Jesus and him working and shining through our lives that we are to be these image bearers of what God looks like. And one of the areas where that's going to be seen is how we conduct ourselves in virtue or moral excellence. And so when we're looking at, okay, what is that supposed to look like? We look to Jesus. He's the model. And one of the places that we can look at what was Jesus' heart about moral excellence, about morality, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. And it's in the Sermon on the Mount that we come to understand that Jesus took the whole idea of morality to a completely higher level when he said, hey, it's not just what you do, but it's what you think. It's what's going on in your head. That's where it starts. So he said, for instance, you say that we should not commit adultery. I say to you that if a man looks at a woman to lust after, that means to desire her sexually, he's already committed adultery in his heart. You say that you shouldn't murder. I'm telling you that if you are angry with someone without cause, that you've committed murder. So Jesus takes the idea of morality, moral excellence, and he brings it to a whole nother level that it's not just about what we do, but it's what we think. It's about our attitudes. 
And Peter says we're to lavishly supply our faith with virtue. And that happens by using the attitudes and the heart and the direction of Jesus to define what that looks like. Praying that in. Looking at Jesus and realizing that, okay, morality isn't going to be seen through the lens of what culture says, but it's going to be seen through the grid and the lens of how does Jesus define morality in these different things. And so I'm looking to him as my guide, as my leader, his heart, his attitude, and I'm praying that into my life. And then Peter says, and then after virtue... Knowledge. Knowledge is the word here in the Greek, epinosis, which means an expert knowledge. It's a practical knowledge. We could say it's an experiential knowledge. It's a knowledge that comes from experience. It's a knowledge that is authentic. It's not just theory, but it's something that is being lived out. It's a practical knowledge that is lived out because we're experiencing the life of Jesus in us. And listen, this is how the principles that we read in the Bible become a practice in our lives. As we're adding knowledge, we're looking as we're praying this in. Okay, this is what Jesus says about virtue, about morality, about moral excellence. Okay, I'm understanding that. Now, Lord, I want that to be lived out in my life. Show me what that looks like. And then he says, and then add to that self-control. Self-control describes an inner strength to control one's desires and cravings. You know, sometimes there's a gap between what we know, our knowledge, and what we do, our actions. Do you know what the bridge to that gap is? It's self-control. It's self-control. This idea of self-control speaks of to hold oneself together. It spoke of the athlete who would say no to eating certain things. He's going to say no to ice cream. He's going to say no to that donut. He's going to say no to that piece of pizza because he's in training. So he's going to say no to these things and he's going to say yes to training. He's going to say yes, I'm going to do that 12-mile run today. And and that's that self-control. And this is what Peter's telling us is that Christian growth takes discipline. It's learning how to resist our flesh and how to walk in the Spirit. And that flows very naturally into the next thing he says. And add to your faith, perseverance. Perseverance in its most literal rendering means to walk under the load. And this tells us that Christian growth doesn't just take discipline, but it also reminds us that it's not always going to be easy. You see... If you've walked with Jesus long enough, you know there's a certain grind to the Christian life. There's a certain grind. It's part of the routine of these disciplines and rhythms that we're bringing into our life. And as we're seeking to become a little less like us and a little bit more like Jesus and lavishly supply our faith with these various things that we're seeking to grow. And sometimes it's hard. 
There's a lot of hills and valleys, and there's a, a lot of times where we have to bear up under the trial and, and, and bear up under the, the hardship or some difficult ex- circumstance, and we just need to stay the course. If you haven't figured this out, there are no shortcuts in the Christian life. There just aren't. I wish there were. I'd be looking for them, man. And when I'm driving somewhere and driving, I'm always looking for the shortcut. In the Christian life, there are no shortcuts. Now, here's what I want you to catch. These first four traits that Peter mentions all focus on the inner man. They all focus on heart stuff. Whereas the next three relate, relate to our, the outer man or our, our relationships with others. And I want you to catch this. The reason why virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance all come first is because we are called to be before we do. We're always called to be. It's always about who we are in Christ and being who we are in Jesus. Growing in Jesus and developing the mind and the heart of Jesus is going to affect the way that we treat others. So the next thing he mentions is godliness. And godliness could be described as godlikeness. It's a word that describes being right with God. So it's speaking of the vertical relationship is right. But it also speaks of being right with others so that the horizontal relationship is right. It's seeing others with God's heart. It's seeing others the way that God does and treating them in that way, which naturally leads then to the next thing he mentions is brotherly kindness. And the idea behind brotherly kindness is bearing one another's burdens. It's being more other-centered than we are self-centered, which flows right into this next thing that he mentions, that we're to lavishly supply our faith with love. And the word that Peter, don't, don't miss this, the word that Peter uses here for love is the word agape. It's the highest form of love. It's that sacrificial love. It's the very love that led Jesus to go to the cross. It's a love that is always has the other person's welfare in view. And Jesus went to the cross. He sacrificed his life so that we who were sinners and far away from God could have our sins forgiven, our guilt removed, that we could be brought into the family of God. So here's what Peter's saying. This is what the Lord is seeking to do in your life, and you're to play a part in it. You are to have cooperation in the operation of God. By seeking to take these various traits and attributes that are all a part of who Jesus is and to apply them to your life. It's like he's saying, here's the target. You know, Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, he says, here's the target. This is what God is seeking to do in your life. Romans 8, 29, he says this, that this is God's desire. It's to conform you into the image of his own dear son. In other words, catch this. God is not seeking to make you a better version of yourself. He's seeking to make you more like Jesus. That's why I love that song. A little less like me and a little more like him. That's the plan. That's what God is seeking to do in our lives. And Peter here is giving us the target. 
And when you know what the target is, you know what you're to be shooting at. You know the direction that you're to be walking in. And these attributes of Jesus, they begin, when they begin to be seen in our lives as we cooperate in the operation of God, yielding ourselves to what God is seeking to do in our lives. Now, here's what's interesting. When we come to verse 8, he tells us what the result is. The result, when we're seeking to lavishly supply our faith with these things, this is the result. Verse 8, he says, and four things he mentions here. First of all, in verse 8, for if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first result is you will be fruitful. And again, that's part of God's goal. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so you will be my disciples. When the Bible speaks of fruit, it's speaking of Christ-like character and the impact that we have on others for the kingdom of God. And so Peter says, if you are looking to lavishly supply your faith with these things, you are going to be fruitful and God is glorified in that. And then he says in verse 9, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Number two, you will be focused, not short-sighted. The word short-sighted or nearsighted describes the person who can't see things at a distance. It's the person who's only able to see what is right in front of him. It speaks of the man or woman who is focused only on temporal things. They can't see the big picture. They can't see what what really is important. And Peter's saying, hey, if these are not a part of your life, you're going to be nearsighted. You're going to be so focused on what's temporal. But the opposite is true of the person who is lavishly supplying their faith in this way. He says, your life will have focus. Your life will have purpose. You will know why you've been saved and why your sins have been forgiven, that you have been saved to be part of the plan of God. And then he says in verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Here's number three, you will be firm-footed. Not stumbling around, not unsure about your faith, not wondering, am I really saved? Have any of you ever had a time in your life where you thought you missed the rapture? Anybody? Anybody? Man, when I was younger, that happened to me all the time. I'd come home, and like the house is unlocked, the television's on, lights are on, and my parents are nowhere to be found. I thought, oh no, what happened? I missed the rapture, you know? <laughs> How am I going to miss? I mean, I told him, he's just freaking out. Because I didn't have that assurance that I was really, really saved. Peter's saying, hey, when you are so experiencing the life of God, the life of Jesus as you are growing in these things and lavishly supplying your faith in this way, you'll have an assurance. Like you'll know, hey, I belong to God. I belong to Jesus because there's that evidence of Jesus working in your life. And then he says in verse 11, and for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here's number four, you will be fulfilled. Not just having purpose here, not just being active here or fruitful here, but being blessed there. You see, every person who is a Christian, 
who's given their life to Jesus, they're going to go to heaven. But I personally believe that our, our ability to enjoy heaven is going to vary by capacity. We're all going to be full. We're all going to be filled. But some, their fullness is going to be like a Dixie cup. Full, but small. Others are going to be like a 32-ounce big gulp. Others are going to be like a 55-gallon drum. Others are going to be like a huge container. And I think as you study the Bible, you come to understand that all of that is connected to what we're doing now with what we're going to be given. That's going to be part of the reward that we receive. And the reward is all about what we're going to be doing in eternity. So you want to have an abundant entrance? Take the resources that you have been given and lavishly supply your faith. Keep growing. Amen? I'll close with this. I read about a man who decided to go across the Atlantic Ocean in a small boat. There's a lot of people that have made that journey, but this guy did it in the smallest boat. His boat was only 13 feet long. I mean, we're talking like a a, a longboard, a surfboard. That's how, how big it was. And this guy's name was Robert Manry, and it took him 78 days to make the trip. His rudder broke several times. He was washed overboard several times. Sometimes the shipping lanes were so bad that he couldn't sleep. So he had to stay awake for days on end. He took a rope and he bound himself to the boat so he wouldn't fall asleep and fall over. Well, after 78 days, he could see the shores of England. And the only thing that was on his mind was, I want to get a hotel I want to get a shower, and I want to sleep for like a week. He was discouraged. He was tired. But as he was nearing the shore, there were 300 other boats out in the water there at the shore to greet him. And 40,000 people on the beach that were ready to greet him, cheering him on for making the journey. And at that moment, when he saw the other boats and he saw all those people, there was a shift that took place in his psyche. That he no longer was thinking about how tired he was or how discouraged he was. He wasn't thinking anymore about a shower. He felt good. He felt blessed. He was satisfied and he was fulfilled. And so too, when you stand in heaven and that crown goes on your head, you won't regret the hours that you spent studying the Bible. You won't regret the hours that you spent in prayer. You won't regret the hours that you spent in serving or helping build up others in their faith because you're going to hear Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord and you are going to be blessed and you are going to be fulfilled and you are going to be satisfied. And don't miss this. This is what Peter's saying. He's saying knowing that that's what's coming knowing that that's what is in our destiny should motivate us now to cooperate in the operation of God by lavishly supplying our faith. So let's go for it. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you 
that you have given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And Lord, I pray that that you would help each of us to be diligent, to be active in this process of building up our spiritual muscles, that we would be growing strong, that we would lavishly supply our faith with what you have given to us. And Lord, I pray for anybody here who has yet to enter into that relationship with you. God, I pray today would be the day that they would just, right now, even in the quietness of their own heart, just say, Jesus, I need you. And Jesus, I, I want you to forgive my sins. Whether watching online, sitting in this room, or out in the courtyard, that right now, that they would just be real with you. And the Bible says that when we do that, God declares, you're justified. You're righteous in my eyes. Lord, I pray that we would be a church family that is stirring each other up to grow, to be strong, to move forward in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.